So, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been in this series called Characters. And it's been a look at really what God's people are really like. I think we have a tendency to look at people in scripture and and kind of hold them to a higher standard uh, than we do ourselves or elevate them onto um, a pedestal and think of them as, you know, maybe even uh, God-like in and of themselves because they're these heroes of the faith that we read about in the Bible. But the truth is they were a lot like you and I. So the first week we looked at David who... um, besides being king and a man after God's own heart, was also an adulterer and a murderer, someone who really struggled throughout his entire life, and yet God used him. Last week, we looked at Rahab, who was a prostitute from Jericho and a part of a completely different religion altogether, and yet when God confronted her and she placed her trust and faith in him, he used her in miraculous ways for his kingdom. This morning, we are going to look at Peter. And so a lot of you have heard of Peter or know Peter. Um, We're going to primarily be in the book of John. So you can go ahead and turn there with me. Um, But before we start uh, looking at Peter's life, I want to tell you a story. So when I was in seminary in Dallas um, a few years ago, I had just finished. um, I was on campus one day doing, doing classes and I just finished lunch and I was about to go to my next class. And um, I get this phone call and it's from my sister. And um, I pick it up and fairly normal things. We're just talking about uh, kind of everyday life, catching up about how things are going. Uh, She was here in Austin and I was in Dallas and just talking through everything. And um, a relatively normal conversation changed immediately because I heard this really loud noise and then silence. And I remember being like, Allison, 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 are you there? Allison, are you there? And then the phone clicks off. And it was one of those times where I had no idea what to do. The phone hangs up, I call back a bunch of times, she never picks up, and I started panicking. I had no idea what had happened, but I knew that going from speaking to silence was probably not a really good thing. Going from a normal conversation to nothing at all caused me to have questions, caused me to doubt, caused me to wonder, caused me to not be sure if everything was okay. Finally, I get a hold of her, and she'd been in this car accident. Um, and thankfully, everything was okay. Everybody was okay. But it's a moment that I'll never forget because just for those few seconds, because of that silence, I had no idea what had happened to her. And the questioning, the doubt, the fear, even the eventual panic wasn't so easy to shake off after that. But silence is like that, isn't it? In a world where we're constantly bombarded with noise, silence is kind of out of place in our lives. It makes us uncomfortable. It causes us to ask questions and to wonder if everything is okay. You've probably experienced this at one point in your life. Maybe it was a time when that significant other set you down to talk about something. They said, hey, hey, we need to, we need to have a conversation. And you sit down with them and those first few seconds are just kind of silence as they sit there and maybe their head's down and they're not really sure how to start. And after a few seconds of those uncomfortable silence, you know this conversation is probably not going to be very good. Your mind starts assuming the worst, right? They don't love me anymore. They're in some serious trouble. They cheated. They're leaving me. Whatever it is, that silence, it takes us away from the moment to places where we're questioning and wondering and unsure. Maybe it was a time when you were trying to get a hold of someone that you talk to all the time, but they aren't picking up their phone, they aren't answering texts or emails. 
A couple of days go by and it's not a huge thing. You just chalk it up to being, them being busy or them being at work or whatever it is. But then it's been five days or a week and you start to get really worried. Moving from talking to this person frequently on the phone all the time, texting back and forth to complete silence. Has you worried? Are they upset with me? Did something bad happen to them? Your mind starts to wander. Maybe it was when you or someone you loved uh, was in the hospital. The doctor comes in after a surgery or came, comes out to explain what's going on. And, but instead of going right into the prognosis, there's kind of this moment of silence where the doctor says, nothing for a few seconds. And immediately your mind starts racing. Is, is everything going to be okay? Is my loved one going to make it? Was the surgery successful? Am I ever going to see them again? Silence does that to us. Whatever the situation, silence can be confusing. It can be uncomfortable. It can cause us to question things. When someone goes silent, we often assume the worst. In the Old Testament, God talked a lot. At first, he was walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he was talking to his people through prophets and kings and Sometimes he spoke directly to them. Sometimes he spoke in dreams. Sometimes he spoke through people. But whatever it was, God was talking to his people. He was giving them instructions. He was telling them how to live. He was leading them until he stopped. But God didn't just go silent for a few seconds like a doctor delivering bad news or a few minutes like my sister in the wreck or a few days like that friend you can't get a hold of. He went silent for 400 years. 400 years. Just to give you a quick idea of how long 400 years really is, think about this. 400 years ago, it was 1616, and the first permanent English settlement in Jamestown, Virginia was nine years old. 400 years ago. We're still, at this point, 160 years away from the Declaration of Independence and 220 years away from the Battle of the Alamo. In 1616, the first newspaper had just been invented and we're still 260 years away from the telephone being invented. Think about how much life has changed over the last 400 years. We're in a completely different place than we were. And life had changed a lot for God's people over 400 years too. When God first went silent, Israel was under the control of the Persian empire. Now, things weren't really great, but for the most part, the Persians pretty much left them alone. They let them practice their religion. They let them do their thing. And they kind of just led from afar. But that all changed when Alexander the Great defeated King Darius of Persia. And the Greeks began to rule. The Greeks allowed God's people to continue worshiping him. But they really wanted Greek culture promoted alongside of it. So it wasn't as bad. Things began to change a little bit. But then, after Alexander died, things began to get progressively worse culminating in 167 B.C. when Antiochus, who was the new king of the Greeks, took away religious freedom completely, overthrew the priesthood, and desecrated the temple. God has now been silent for over 200 years. And I'm sure, if I'm putting myself in his people's shoes, they're thinking... At this really low point in our lives, the priesthood has just been overthrown. The temple, our most important place, has been desecrated. God's going to break the silence. He's going to come out and rescue us. He's finally going to speak again, but he doesn't. 
I'm sure that a few of God's people who weren't doubting his existence already began to doubt it now. Remember, no one alive on earth at this time had ever heard directly from God. He became the stuff of legends. He became the stuff of stories passed down generation after generation. I'm sure even the most devout were listening to the silence coming from God and thinking, where is God in all of this? Is he mad at us? Why doesn't he care? Is he even real? A little over 100 years later, Rome conquers the Greeks and takes control of the entire region. The Romans set up this really heavy tax and began promoting their own culture and still silence from God. At this point in our story, 16 generations have passed since the last person heard from God. During those 16 generations of silence, the stories about God had become harder and harder to believe. And the people of God are experiencing all of the things that that silence usually brings along with it. Doubt, fear, questions, despair. And it is into this silence at this point in time that our main character today is born, Peter, or Simon as he was called until Jesus changed his name. He was originally from Bethsaida. When we meet him, he's living in this town called Capernaum. Both of these towns are on the Sea of Galilee where the economy relies heavily on fishing. Peter grew up around the water and he spent the majority of his life before Christ as a fisherman. In fact, Peter and his brother Andrew, along with James and John, who are two other brothers who were eventually disciples, were all partners in a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. We don't know much about Peter's religious background, but we do know that he was born into this deep silence in the 400th year of silence, literally, from God. I would bet that he had some questions about this religion that he was born into, if it was real and nobody would heard from God in so long, and does this really matter? How does this apply to me? And we don't really know what his background was, but we do know that his brother Andrew was a follower of a guy named John the Baptist. And without going deeply into John the Baptist's life, he basically was the guy who prepared the way for Jesus. He spoke about the coming of the kingdom of God and called people to repent and be baptized. That's the name John the Baptist. He went around doing that. So Peter's brother, Andrew, was a follower of this John the Baptist guy. And the first time we meet Peter in the Bible is John chapter 1. Andrew, Peter's brother, is hanging out with John the Baptist when Jesus walks by. It's verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. That's John the Baptist talking. When the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. So Andrew spends the day with Jesus, and he finds out, who he really is. He's God in the flesh. He's the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, the Savior of all humanity. And so what does he do? He goes back to his best friend, his brother, his business partner, Peter, and he says, look, I met this guy. I met the Messiah. You've got to come see him. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he, ha and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter. So here's Peter living at the tail end of 400 years of silence from God when God himself shows up 
in the person of Jesus Christ and breaks the silence to him. Breaks the silence by speaking directly to Peter. And what a weird conversation that first one was, right? Hey, I'm, I'm Simon. My brother's told me a lot about you. No, your name is Peter now. <laughs> I feel like that would be odd, right? And talking to this guy for the first time. But it's there during that first conversation that Jesus begins to change Peter's life. He does it first by changing his name from Simon to Peter. And this is a really significant change. Simon means listening or grass-like or reed-like. And really it was a term used to describe these tall reeds that grew near the water. And if you know anything about reeds that grow near the water, they're really tall and they're really thin. And anytime the wind blows off of the water, they move around, they sway. This name was commonly attached to people who were easily swayed, always listening and being tossed around by everything that was around them. And that was Simon. He just kind of went whatever whatever way the wind blew. But Peter, by contrast, means rock, steady, unwavering, unable to be blown around by the winds of change. The shift between these two names is massive. He's basically telling Peter, you used to be called Simon and you went whatever way the wind blew, but now I call you rock because you are steady and because you are unmovable. And later that's going to be really, really significant. We're going to come back to it in just a second. But Peter has this odd meeting with the Savior of the world where in their brief exchange, Jesus renames him. We don't know anything else about their interaction, but we know that Jesus leaves for Galilee the next day, and Peter returns to this fishing business that he has with his brother. And I'm sure that he was a little bit shaken up by this. I'm sure that he was a little bit weirded out by this guy that just changed his name, but he just goes back to fishing. That's really all that he's ever known, and he goes back to this fishing business that it's important to note by all accounts was an incredibly successful fishing business. I think that a lot of times Peter and these other disciples, they get painted as kind of these like bumbling, dumb fishermen who just got on their boats every day and went out and cast their reels and hoped they caught something. But really, according to scripture, that's not the case at all. With Peter, Andrew, James, and John, not only did they own and manage a fishing business. It was really, really successful. We know that because Peter didn't live in a seaside hut like many of the fishermen did at the time. They would just kind of set up this lean-to on the beach, close to the beach, so that they could get out to the water any time. He lived in a huge home in the city of Capernaum. We know this because his home was large enough that it later hosted Jesus, the 12 disciples, and probably hundreds of other followers who came to hear Jesus' teaching. This home actually eventually became the place where the very first church started. So Peter is back with Andrew, James, and John leading their really successful fishing business. And a few weeks or a few months go by and they meet Jesus again for the second time. Luke 5, starting in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, teacher, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. 
When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything, and followed him. So this second encounter that Jesus has was enough to convince Peter, as well as Andrew and James and John, to leave their incredibly successful fishing business. Literally, they pulled their boats up, put them on the dock, and they walk away. This thing was so intense. This faith was so real. This person was so powerful that they said, this has to be it. This has to be what we were looking for. After 400 years of silence from our people, this has to be our God. And so they walk away. And so begins the greatest adventure of their lives. And for the next three years, Peter and 11 other guys spent virtually every moment with Jesus. They witnessed him turn water into wine. They witnessed him heal people who were sick, cast out demons, and even raise people from the dead. Peter was a leader. And immediately, this leadership started to show. He became one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the three men that spent most of their time with him his closest friend and confidant. But Peter was also naturally impulsive and brash and sometimes really struggled with his faith. And this dichotomy, one where he led the disciples, one where he was often the spokesperson for this group that followed Jesus around, and the fact that he was also always putting his foot in his mouth and sometimes struggled to have even any faith at all, this dichotomy begins to define Peter's life. We see it in Matthew 16. The disciples are traveling with Jesus when he begins to ask them some tough questions. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the first question that Jesus asks is kind of broad, right? He says, who do people? So not necessarily you, but Who do others, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man was another name for the Christ or the Messiah or God, right? So he's saying, who do other people say that God is? And they're saying, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so Jesus is satisfied with that answer, but then he gets really specific in verse 15. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. I love that verse. And I can just picture all of the other disciples. You know, they're chiming in when he asked the first question. Hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? They're like, oh, some Jeremiah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And then Jesus is like, who do you say I am? And they're all like. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And here comes Peter, filled with faith, believing in Jesus. And then Jesus reminds Peter of their very first meeting. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Remember that really weird name change exchange that they had earlier? Where he said, no, you're not Simon anymore. You're Peter. Well, it was for this moment right here. 
You can't build the church on a foundation that's swayed by every wind and breeze, right? You need a foundation that's built on a rock, unwavering. And Jesus says to Peter, you are it. That great faith that you have, I'm going to build my church on it. Incredible faith on display and a beautiful promise from Jesus. Probably one of the high points of, of Peter's life, right? But then literally two verses later, two verses later, this happens. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. How do you go from the rock on which Jesus will build his church to get behind me, Satan? How does that happen in just a couple of verses? I think the answer lies in Jesus' words, right? After Peter's first answer, Jesus says, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. But after Peter's second answer, Jesus says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, when Peter first spoke, it wasn't really him speaking. He was allowing God to lead through him, to speak through him. It was coming from God. But when he spoke the second time, it was coming from his flesh. He was back in control. He was saying, I'm in charge. I think this is an important lesson for us as well. When we're trusting God and we're letting him lead, there is nothing that we can't do. We can be the rock on which Jesus builds church when we're allowing Jesus to work through us. But when we're trusting in ourselves and letting our flesh lead, we can't do anything. In the first scenario, God works through us. In the second scenario, God ends up just working despite us. He still accomplishes what he wants to accomplish, but we don't get to be a part of it anymore. Later in his life, Peter and the other disciples are caught out on this boat in the middle of a storm. And as the winds and the waves are kind of raging around them, they begin to see this figure way off in the distance. And many of them become afraid, but it turns out that this figure is Jesus. And as Jesus calls out to them to take courage, Peter puts his brash and beautiful faith on display again. Matthew 14, 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? With his faith in God's hands, and his eyes focused on Jesus, Peter walked on water. With his faith in God's hand and his eyes focused on Jesus, Peter is the rock on which God builds his church. But as soon as he turns his gaze away from Christ, as soon as he gets concerned about the stuff happening around him, the storms and the wind and the waves raging, he starts to trust in himself again and he begins to sink. Peter goes from faith-filled to faithless in just a matter of seconds. And like I said earlier, Peter's life was really marked by this dichotomy, and it was never 
more on display than the night before Jesus was killed. Many of you have heard this story. It it starts out with Jesus and his disciples having their last meal together. Jesus is explaining all of the things that are going to happen next, including predicting his own death. But he then predicts that the disciples aren't going to be there for him when he really needs them to be. And Peter immediately takes offense to this, right? And he says, verse 33, Peter replied, even if I fall away, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter's faith on display again. He vows to die before denying Jesus. And I I truly believe that he means it. I truly believe this is coming from a place of him saying, God, I am surrendered to you and I would rather die than deny your son. But as they get up and walk away from the table that night, things begin to take a really different turn. Jesus is arrested a few hours later and right after that, he's sentenced to death before the Jewish high council. And where's Peter? We pick it up later in the same chapter, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him You also were with Jesus in Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway. He's trying to get away from these questions. He was just with Jesus as he got arrested and taken before the high council and sentenced to death. And now he's being asked, do you know this guy? And he's like, no, I don't know him. I need to get out of here. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. That means he promised, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You see, Peter was from the same region that the other disciples were from and that Jesus were from. And so they're in Jerusalem now and people know, hey, you're one of those guys. I've seen you there. You talk just like him. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, he will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter has done the unthinkable. He's denied Jesus, not just once or twice, but three times. He's turned his back on his closest friend and the savior of the universe when he needed him most. And I'm sure that as he's sitting out there weeping after his last denial, he's thinking, there's no coming back from this. This is over. They're going to kill Jesus. I denied him. My life is done. And the next day, Jesus is killed on the cross, and Peter is nowhere to be found. And now, that silence that Peter was born into 400 years of God not speaking to anyone is back. It's worse than ever. His friend, his best friend, the person he'd spent the last three years walking with and placing his faith in is gone. And there's no hearing from him again, at least that's what Peter thinks. But this time, the silence doesn't last for 400 years. It only lasts for three days. Jesus rises from the dead, begins appearing to different people, including the disciples, And he finds Peter and the other disciples in hiding, afraid for their lives. But he promises them peace. He tells them that he's sending them out to do his work. 
He's saying, don't worry. The silence isn't going to be 400 years this time. It was three days. That three days is over. Your, my peace is with you, and I'm sending you out to do my work. But I don't think Peter really buys it. Because the next time we see him, he isn't teaching about God's grace or healing people or loving people or traveling around talking about the kingdom of God. No, the next time we see him, he's gone back to the only thing he was ever really good at, fishing. John 21, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Peter says, I'm going to fish. You can almost hear the concession in his voice. I think he's just given up. He's basically saying, look, maybe you guys are called out to go do Jesus's work, but you don't understand what I did. You don't understand that the night that he was handed over to the people who would eventually kill him, I denied him not once, not twice, but three times. I turned my back on him. I wasn't even there when he died. You guys might be called to go do his work, but I'm not. I'm beyond redemption. I'm just going to go back to fishing. But verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Now, remember back to the very, uh, the second time that Jesus met Peter. He's out fishing, not catching anything. Jesus comes to him and says, drop your nets again. They do and they take too many fish that the boat begins to sink. By repeating this miracle, Jesus is reminding Peter of his calling, reminding him of that time when he said, you're no longer going to fish for fish, you're going to fish for men. He immediately takes Peter back to that time and that place where Peter was living by pure faith in Christ. When he was stepping out, leaving his wildly successful fishing business and saying, I'm all yours, my faith and trust is in you. And Peter's ecstatic. That's the place he wants to be. That's the place where he finds freedom in life. And so he wraps his jacket around him, he jumps in the water, and he is running toward Jesus. After Peter and the other disciples get to shore, they begin to cook and eat some of the fish they've caught. And as the meal comes to a close, Jesus asks Peter a question. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus meant by these, but I, I think he's talking about the fish, honestly. I think he's saying, Peter, you're pretty eager to go back to your old business. You're pretty eager to walk away from this faith, this journey, this adventure that I've called you to. But I want to know, do you really love me more than your old life? Do you really trust me more than you trust yourself? Peter says, yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? A lot has been made of 
why Peter gets upset here. Some think it's because Jesus' command changes each time, right? He says, feed my lambs once. He says, take care of my sheep once. And he says, feed my sheep. Some think it's because Jesus has used his old name, Simon. He doesn't call him Peter. Some think it's because Jesus uses two different Greek words for love when he's having this conversation. Some think Peter's just sad because it feels like Jesus doesn't believe him. He just asks him three times over and over and over again. But honestly, I think all that stuff is secondary. Peter gets upset because the three questions take him right back to the three questions that he was asked on the worst night of his life and the three denials that came out of Peter's mouth when he was asked those questions. Think about it. Over the course of that morning, Peter goes from feeling disqualified because of his denials. He's like, I'm done. I'm going to go fish. To seeing Jesus repeat the miracle from the time that he called him out to be his disciple. And he's ecstatic. He's jumping in the water and he's running towards Jesus back to feeling beyond redemption as he remembers the three denials on the night Jesus was betrayed. No wonder he's hurt. That word hurt there is also translated grieved. Peter was grieving. Just like that night he sat outside and wept because he turned his back on his best friend when he needed him most. But instead of weeping and walking away that day, Peter musters up one last faith-filled response. He said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Notice he calls him Lord, and he says that Jesus knows all things. He's saying, Jesus, you are Lord and God, and because of that, you know that I love you. It reminds me a lot of what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are my Lord and my God, and I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he said to him, follow me. And just like that, Jesus redeems Peter. Just like that, as Peter felt like his life was over, he felt like denying Christ three times was too much to overcome. Jesus brings him back. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, we see his prophecy about building his church on Peter the Rock come true. Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And it was during that message that the Holy Spirit begins to come down and indwell every believer. Peter goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem and then to help start churches all over the world. Jesus takes a brash, grieving, and at times completely faithless fisherman and puts him as the head of the very first church. It seemed like Peter was done. He denied Christ three times, completely walked away from his faith. But even after all of that, Peter wasn't beyond redemption. All Jesus asked of Peter was to place his faith back in him. And when Peter did that, when he looked at Jesus and he said, you are my Lord and my God and I love you, Jesus did more through Peter's life than Peter could have ever imagined. Even after denying Christ, Peter wasn't beyond redemption. And neither are you. Neither are you. I know that there are so many of you in here who've walked away from church and maybe God altogether at one point or another in your life. I know because I've been there 
too. Maybe it was something that you heard a pastor say one day. Maybe he or she offended you and he said, I'm done. That's it. I can't do this anymore. Maybe it was the way that some Christians treated you. Or maybe you just realized that you never really believed it in the first place. You could be one of the ones that just got tired of trying to follow all the rules that Christians kept telling you about. It became exhausting and what people were doing outside the church seemed like a lot more fun. You may never have even been all that connected to God to begin with, but something made you say, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. Maybe it wasn't someone or something at all. Maybe it was just you. Maybe something you did took you to a place where redemption didn't seem like an option. Maybe you walked away for a few months or a few years or even decades, but whatever it was, you walked away and it feels like something you can't come back from. Yeah, you might be sitting here in church on Sunday morning, but you don't really truly feel like you can be used by God. There's just too much stuff in your past. You might be allowed to come and sit and sing and listen to a message, but he can't really work through you, right? You're beyond redemption. I hope that hearing Peter's story today lets you know just how much of a lie that really is. The truth is that nothing can separate you from him. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His desire to redeem you and to restore you and then to use you to share his love with everyone around you. That's his desire. That's his hope. He took the guy who denied him three times and made him the head of the very first church. What can he do with you? What can he do with you more than you could ever ask or imagine? He just wants you to trust him. He just wants you to place your faith in him no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how many times you've walked away. Nothing can separate you from his love. Right now, we're gonna all stand together. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm just gonna pray over us. And then the band is gonna start. They're gonna sing a beautiful, beautiful song called Give Me Faith. And I want you to just let it kind of wash over you. Sing it really loud if you want to, or just let the words kind of flow over your heart. But either way, let this be your prayer as you walk away from this place today. Lord, give me faith. Let's pray. God, make that our prayer this morning. Give us faith. Help us to know, help us to understand, help us to realize that none of us are beyond redemption. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we struggle with, no matter how many times we've walked away, no matter if we've denied you, just like Peter, God, there is no one that you can't restore. There is no one that you can't use in your kingdom. God, as we sing this beautiful song, I pray that you would make it our heart, make it our prayer. Give us faith to just turn to you and say, you are my Lord and my God, and I love you.
Jesus' name.